I'd like to invite you this evening to turn with me in God's Word to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading in verse 18. And then afterwards, we'll turn to the faithful summary of God's Word as found in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 15. But first, we'll give our attention to the reading of God's Word. We're reading God's Word this evening under the heading of, He suffered for me. He suffered for me. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep, straying sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's turn now also to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 15, which can be found in your bulletin, as well as page 216 in the Forms and Prayers book. 216 in the Forms of Prayers or in your bulletin. Lord's Day 15, question 37 asks this, what do you understand by the word suffered? that during His whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This He did in order that, by His suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, He might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did He suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that He, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that He was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes. By this death I am convinced that He shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Blessed congregation, as we continue our study on the Apostles' Creed and the articles of our undoubted Christian faith, we recognize that Christians are those who have faith. To be a Christian, you need to have faith. 
And we want faith. We want to have a faith that is strong, a faith that can endure, that can stand the test of time. But the reality is is that faith is not constant. Oftentimes, as Christians, we can oscillate between periods of great joy and satisfaction and comfort in the Lord to periods of despair. And one of the most significant challenges to a believer's faith is suffering. How is there any among us who when the instructor asks in question 37, do you know what suffering means? Who says, Pastor, I know what suffering means. I know pain. I know grief. I know persecution. And R.C. Sproul is right when he says, when suffering strikes, Christians find themselves caught off guard, confused, and full of questions. Suffering can strain faith to the limits. It's interesting that there are many people today who believe that a Christian is somebody who will not have to endure suffering. The Christian faith is touted by some people of being one of health and wealth. I don't think that's the Apostle Paul's experience. Nor do I think that's what the Lord Jesus experienced. To be a Christian is not to escape suffering. We will endure suffering. We are called to endure pain and trials and hardship in life. Remember, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus. Paul freely admits he endured suffering. In fact, we come this evening to a book, 1 Peter, written to people who are suffering. Did you know in every chapter of 1 Peter, Peter mentions that the audience to which he is writing is suffering. You see this in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He says this in chapter 2, verse 19. Follow me if you will. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 3, verse 13. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 4, verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Chapter 5, verse 9, resist Him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. The recipients of First Peter are suffering. How do we make sense of suffering? This book, 
as I mentioned, is written to people who are suffering. And in some ways, it's written to us. If you look at verse 1 of 1 Peter, 1 verse 1, the book is dedicated from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And who does he dedicate it to? To the elect exiles. To people who don't have a home. To people who are foreigners and strangers in this world, but who endure persecutions. Congregation, is this not us? Are we not the people who have been called by God, but in a world not our home? In a world where we will endure sufferings. How do we make sense of suffering? Sufferings in our lives, how do we make sense of poverty? How do we make sense of heartbreak? How do we make sense of sickness? How do we make sense of miscarriage? How do we make sense of war and violence and death? What do we do with these things that so threaten our faith? Peter says, that's why I wrote this book. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says, beginning in the middle of verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. Listen to this. The salvation of your souls. Peter is saying to the recipients of this letter that the persecution, that the sufferings they are enduring are not without meaning. Their suffering is not pointless. Suffering has a purpose. The salvation of their souls. He brings them back to the Gospel. And the message of the Gospel is not death unto death. The message of the Gospel is death unto life. Death unto life. And we see this especially in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's our theme this evening. Christians are called to follow Jesus. Suffering. We are called to follow in Jesus' suffering unto glory. Called to follow Jesus' suffering unto glory. I want to show you this in three things here. One thing did escape your bulletin for you note takers. We want to see the depth of his suffering. We want to see a just, here's what was missing, judge and an unjust judge. There's two judges, a just judge and an unjust judge. And then we want to see the curse of the cross. Let's look at the depth of Christ's suffering. It's interesting as Peter as begins to elaborate on Jesus' suffering, it's all within the context of human suffering, our suffering. You see, it's not just that you may happen to endure suffering in this life, but all people will endure some suffering to a varying extent. 
This is why Peter, if you look at verse 21, which is such an important verse for our passage and our time together this evening, he calls it in verse 21, a call. You are called to suffer. Again, Sproul says, suffering is our vocation. It's your task. It is even your duty in life to suffer. And this, of course, is written within the context of persecution. In verse 18, he specifically mentions servants. But if you flip one chapter over to three, chapter 3, verse 9, he very clearly extends this idea to the whole Christian community. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Same language. Slaves aren't the only ones called. Servants aren't the only ones called to suffer. But you and I are also called. But notice, Peter reaches into the culture for an example. Verse 18, he mentions servants. Now the Greek word here for servants is not the normal term for servants, which is doulos which can mean servant or slave. The word he uses is oikotai, which literally means house servant. Unfree person who serves in house. Now to the Romans, this would have been an easy example to pull out of their culture. Remember that we estimate that one-fourth of the Roman Empire's population would have been of slaves. There are some scholars who say the backbone of the Roman society was that they were a society of slaves. And it's a good example because a slave, maybe more than anyone else, would have known what it meant to suffer. Even the Bible says in Exodus 21, verse 21, that the Jews are allowed to beat their slaves. The Romans were said to be allowed to beat their slaves even to the point of crippling or death. We're talking about unjust suffering. Peter makes note of that in verse 18. Some of their masters are good and gentle, but some of them are unjust. And there's nothing more unjust than beating or persecuting someone because they love Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, this is what was happening. In the Roman culture, it was expected that a slave would follow his master's religion. Slaves in the religion of the Romans were considered a lower sphere of humanity. And so their religion actually perpetuated their status of not having value. But look at what Peter says in verse 17. 2 verse 17. Who is to have the highest authority even to a slave? He says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. But the highest authority, says Peter, fear is to belong to God. Therefore, when a slave converted to Christianity... And Christianity says that a slave and a master are equal before God. It put a target on their backs. The slaves were seen as rebellious. They became targets for swift, 
and certain punishment. And here's the kicker. They got punished for doing nothing wrong. Children, have you ever been punished by your parents for something that your brother or sister did? And you say, that was so wrong. That's what's happening here. Christian slaves were being persecuted, being beaten by their masters simply for loving Jesus Christ. So what does Peter say? Does he say you should overthrow your masters? Take the sword and run it through that evil man. Flee from them. Run from them. Overthrow the institution. Look what he says in verse 18. They should submit. Not only to the good and the gentle, but to the unjust. The word literally means the perverted or the twisted ones. They should submit. Even if their master cripples them. Even if their master kills them. Peter says, you should submit. There are Christians today, congregation, who are still yet shedding their blood for the sake of Christ. Does that fill you with a holy anger? I feel the the burden of the psalmist. How long, O Lord, will you allow this evil to happen? How long, O Lord, will you allow their blood to be shed? Why, O Lord, do you allow these brothers and sisters in Christ to suffer for their faith? Peter says in verse 19 and 20, it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Look at the end of verse 20. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He says, if you are suffering and you look to God, you will receive His grace. You will receive His grace. He will pay special attention to you. He will draw near to you. He will supply your need. He will be all that you need. Look to Him when suffering, one psalm I came across when working on this sermon this week is Psalm 34, verse 18. And it so comforted my heart. The psalmist says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You will be called to suffer. But when we look to God, we are told He will come alongside of us and He will be near unto us. And He will bind up our wounds. And He will heal our broken hearts. But Peter's point here is that you shouldn't be surprised that you suffer. Come with me to verse 21 
of 2 Peter 2 here. This, I think, really is the heart of Peter's argument um, to these servants in their suffering. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. The term example refers to a pattern of letters. Maybe some of you did this with your children. When children are learning how to write and then they trace out those letters over your handwriting. Have you done that? You homeschooling moms. They trace the pattern, right? We do that with our children. What it suggests, this word example means it suggests the closest of copies. He is saying to those who are suffering, trace Christ over your life. You are not suffering aimlessly, but you are following in His steps. The servant isn't greater than his master. And Christ suffered. Look at the depth of Christ's suffering. The Catechism mentions this. During His whole life on earth, He suffered. I hear Christians all the time saying, I can't believe the state of the world that we live in. Did you see this latest news? Did you see this movie? Did you see this newspaper, magazine, something of that nature? We feel surrounded by sin and the sin pains us, doesn't it? Think about how much more the sinful world would have grieved Christ. Amplify it by thousands. Verse 22 says, He never committed any sin. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. He was perfect. The reality of the fact is that Peter hung out with Jesus for three years and he says, I never saw Him sin. I never saw Him get angry in an unjust way. I never saw Him curse. I never saw Him mutter anything evil. I never saw Him steal I never saw injustice in him. Folks, if you hung out for me with a day, you would see me sin. Peter says, for three years, I never saw him sin. He would have been so wonderful, so delightful to be with, but everywhere Christ looked, all he would have seen is our, the sins of the men and women around him. He suffered as the Holy One surrounded by sin. Look, he also suffered in his rejection. He left heaven because he loves the world. His heart was full of love, but they received him not. Peter says he was reviled. He was despised forsaken, unappreciated, rejected, even by his own friends. Remember who is writing this book. Peter himself forsook the Lord three times. The Catechism mentions he suffered in soul. He bore our sins. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. He bore the sins of the world, yet more importantly, in his suffering of soul. He suffered from the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. 
See, when we think of the cross, we often think of something that's glorious and beautiful. It's our reconciliation. God and man coming together again. But what we often miss is that as every sin was laid upon Christ, it was, He became more and more an offense to His Father. As our sins were finally all laid upon Him, He cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And what is God's answer from heaven? The soul whose sins shall die. He is forsaken by God. The depth of Christ's suffering is that He became sin. The Holy One of God is reckoned a sinner. He is punished as though He did it all. Even though He did nothing wrong. Looking back at verse 21, the Apostle says something so powerful. To this you have been called. Called to share in His suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. When I was a young lad, in Canada when it snowed in August. That's a joke. And I would go out in the snow with my father. When I was quite young, I would step in his steps so that I wouldn't have to trudge through the snow. But what that meant was wherever my father went, I went. Wherever he led, I followed Notice what the Apostle is saying here. You are called to follow in His footsteps. But where are His footsteps leading? They're leading us to the cross. His footsteps lead to the grave. We are called to endure suffering. This morning when we celebrated the Lord's Supper, we read the words from Matthew 11, My burden is easy, and my yoke is light. Sometimes this, these words of Christ don't make sense to us when we are carrying an unbearable burden of suffering. I know some people who have had so many trials in their lives, they don't feel like their suffering is light and their burden is easy. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that these sufferings, are you are not bearing them alone. You are not by yourself in your suffering. But Christ, in a sense, has come alongside of you. And He is bearing under that burden with you. It's not that He takes the burden. Nowhere in the Scriptures is it promised that Christians won't endure trials and sufferings. But what was unbearable without Christ it is bearable with Him. That's what Matthew 11 is saying. 
because He is willing to suffer. Suffer for us. Suffer with us. Our burdens become light as He strives with us to glory. Let's look at our second point this evening. A just judge. Remember, insert that word there. A just judge and an unjust judge. Jesus throughout his, the Gospels taught that we must depend on the Father as our way of life. With all of its implications. Just like our earthly fathers, we can look to them for provision. We can look to our fathers for safety. We can look to our fathers for comfort. Our fathers can be trusted. We come to a paradox at the cross. How can God the Father be just? if He led His Son to a horrible death upon the cross? How can God be trusted when He forsakes His own Son? But Peter says, Jesus entrusted Himself to one who judges justly. That is that God did not send His Son to the cross for some arbitrary reason. God did not send Christ to the cross because He was indifferent to Jesus' sufferings, but because He is just. His justice is seen in the cross, says Peter. Notice this. The Father is a just judge. He's a just God. The Scriptures are full of the justice of God. Genesis 18.25 Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Isaiah 30.18 He is a God of justice. Psalm 33.5 Who loves justice. All justice is from God, belongs to God, and justice, Psalm 89 says, is the foundation of His throne. Here's my point. God is not shown as unjust at the cross. Peter is saying that Christ is able to endure His sufferings. Able to endure the accusations of the Pharisees. Able to endure the violence of the Jews. Able to endure the pain of the cross because God is His defender. God is His defender. He is the one who will judge all people. God is the one who will judge evil and vindicate righteousness. The God of the judge, excuse me, of the earth will do right. And Jesus showed us that at the cross. Jesus trusted that even in His sufferings, God would do right. It is, as John Calvin said, impossible for God, who is the judge of the world, and who by His very nature loves equity, whose will is the law of justice and rectitude, should in the least degree swerve from His righteousness. That even when we endure the bitter providences and the sufferings of this life, we can be assured that on that last day, when we stand before God, He is just. And there are two types of people in this world. People who take comfort in God's justice and people who ought to fear God's justice. You should fear God's justice if when you stand before God, 
all that will be coming to you is punishment. Penalty. It is penal. Now justice can be and will be for the punishment of sin. But in the Bible, more often is justice an expression not of God's wrath, but justice is an expression of God's reward. Burkhoffson says this, justice notes, or excuse me, Burkhoff notes that God's justice manifests itself not only in the distribution of punishment, but in the distribution of rewards, of His divine love, of His dealing out of His bounties, But none of those things are by merit, but by His grace alone. And you say, well, how do we receive this grace? We're sinners. So often we think of standing before the judgment seat of God on that last day and being our sins being read to us. Our shortcomings, our failures, our faults. How does God receive us and give us merits and rewards and bountiful blessings on that last day? Look at what the Catechism says. So that He, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was, past tense, to fall on us. See, Christ not only gave Himself to a just judge, but He also gave Himself to an unjust judge. Pilate. See, when you compare Pilate to God the Father, it's very clear that Pilate is unjust, isn't it? We are told in Matthew 27 that Pilate examines Jesus' life, he speaks to him, and he declares in an official judicial process he is innocent. Yet still condemned to die. Not justice. That's not justice. It's the opposite of justice. But when you read question 38 of our catechism, did you notice this? The verdict of Pilate and the verdict of God are mentioned in the same sentence. In the same breath. So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an unjust earthly judge, comma, and so free us from the severe judgment of God. What is it saying? Brothers and sisters, this teaching is so profound. Please, if you only get one thing from our time together, please understand this. Pilate's verdict of death for the innocent is unjust. But God didn't look at Jesus when our sins were laid on Him as an innocent man. Do you hear what I'm saying? When Christ was on the cross and your sins were placed on Him, He was no longer innocent. Rather, He was our mediator who took our guilt 
and thus as a guilty sinner deserved death and judgment and hell. Pilate's act is still sin. He should not have violated justice. But through Pilate, God renders His verdict. God renders His judgment of our sins. And the judgment is guilty. Guilty. This is why the Catechism mentions the sentences of those two judges together. Pilate's sentence becomes God's sentence. And the verdict is the same. He is sentenced to death by God. Look at what the Catechism says. So that we are not. He is sentenced to execution so that we are not executed. He is sentenced to hell to so free us from the severe judgment that would have fallen on us apart from the work of Christ. What this means, my dear friend, is that when you stand before the judge of righteousness, should you have believed upon Christ and confessed His name, your sins will not be read to you. Because you don't have any sins. You're perfect. Your sins have been put on Christ. You will not hear a verdict of condemned. You will not hear a verdict of guilty. You will hear the, ger- the verdict of welcome to the eternal rest. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because you have been perfect or done everything right, but because Christ was judged for you. He paid the debt. One word of application here this evening. Sometimes as Christians we think, I'm dealing with so many sufferings, so many trials and tribulations. We ask the question, has God abandoned me? Have you ever prayed Christ's prayer from Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Peter is reminding those servants who are suffering that even though you are suffering, it does not mean that God has abandoned you because God didn't abandon Christ. In fact, it was through the suffering, through the cross and through the grave that God produced redemption for His people. Your suffering, again I say, is not without purpose. It is not meaningless. But follow in His steps through the cross and through the grave to glory. Finally, our catechism points out that Jesus was crucified. Why did Jesus have to be crucified? I know the catechism's answer. But I guess I mean a little bit more. Why did He have to be crucified? To witness crucifixion would have been one of the most humiliating things. The man would have been stripped naked. 
in the, the films, and you know, when you see a cross like this, um, it seems so high and off the ground, but it very likely would have been maybe this tall, so that people could literally come up and touch them. And we have stories of them ripping beards off of the people who hung there. It was disgusting. It was brutal. Couldn't Pilate have simply said, kill him? In a quick stab of the sword, it would have been over. The Jews favored stoning. You know, to die by crucifixion was not only humiliating, but it was also painful. Incredible pain. We believe that the nails would have been put through the wrist and then tied to the cross. Pounded through the bones and the tendons and the flesh into the beam. They would affix their feet as well. And the effect wasn't that you died from the nails. The effect was that as you hung there, you couldn't push yourself back up. And it constricted your chest so that you couldn't breathe. It was death by slow asphyxiation. That's why in the crucifixion of Christ we read that they came to break the legs of the men so that as their legs were broken they would die faster. They would run out of oxygen. Put it this way. If God is so merciful why not choose a quicker, less painful, less humiliating way of death. The catechism helps us here. By this death, I am convinced that he shouldered the curse. We touched on it last week. Then in Deuteronomy 21, it says a hanged man is cursed by God kind of people who were crucified were slaves. They were cursed. They were criminals. This is why the Jews reviled Him. As they saw Him hanging on the cross, they say, that man is cursed by God. To be crucified would have meant you were headed straight for hell, theologically speaking. No hope of redemption for that soul crucified It's a public statement by God that Jesus took not only the punishment, the physical punishment, but He suffered the torments of hell on that cross. Question 37 says, especially at the end, the wrath of God against the whole human race rested upon Him. Congregation, do you see the curse? The curse isn't just that Jesus died. The curse isn't just the nails or the whips. The curse is that Jesus went to hell on that cross. God poured out His wrath for you upon that cross. God's anger burned against you. Burned against Christ, I should say, for you on that cross. Every Easter, the simple question that afflicts my mind is this. Why? 
We're not worthy. Why would he go through such pain and anguish of soul for me? Again, question 37. To gain for us God's grace, that is God's favor, to gain righteousness, to cleanse us from all wickedness, and eternal life. The fatal wounds of the suffering Savior were given to heal the fatal wounds of our sins. By His wounds you are healed. In Adam we are like sheep who have strayed away. But He came to earth and suffered for us to lead us to glory. Follow in His steps. His steps lead to the cross. His steps will lead to the grave. But His steps don't end there, do they? The steps go on all the way to heaven. So that we might live, Peter says in verse 24, to righteousness. So that we can return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The idea of verses 21 and 25 is that the steps of Christ, following in the steps of Christ, we will endure suffering. But they lead through the cross into the grave. But in following in Christ's steps, He will also lead us into glory. He suffered in this world for our sake, that He might take us to heaven. This is why we can say with the instructor in Lord's Day 15, He suffered for me. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we thank You for the love of Your Son who endured such bitter anguish not only of body but also of soul so that He might save His people We know that we are sinners, but this is a testimony of Your divine love. How You have loved us so. That Your Son might come to bear the eternal wrath of God for us on the soul. To go to hell for us. But then to take us to glory. Father, we give You thanks. And we worship You and praise You for the sacrifice of Jesus our suffering Savior. And in His name we pray. Amen.